Uh, we'll go and get your Bibles out. Turn to the book of Philippians. Uh, Philippians, about uh, two-thirds of the way through the New Testament. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have a number in the lobby uh, that you can use. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. Take that, use that. Uh, that'll be the greatest book you ever read, bar none. Um, but as you're turning to the book of Philippians, we continue in our sermon series, Faithful Church. Uh, pursuing God's design for his church and certainly our endeavor, our desires that we would be a faithful church. And so a couple weeks ago, we talked about a faithful church loves God. Last week, a faithful church loves God's word. Uh, This week, we encounter the idea of a faithful church loves the gospel. And so let me begin to have us think around that by asking you this question. When you think of the word gospel, what comes to your mind? Think about that for a moment. You think of the word gospel, what is it that comes to your mind? What is it that you begin to think of or where does your maybe heart begin to move? Anyone want to jump out there and give us what comes to your mind? Good news. Good news? Okay, what else? God's word. What else? Rescue, reconciliation, yeah, those are all good words. Those are all good terms and, and, and concepts that are tied to the gospel. And uh, really, anymore, the word gospel has kind of become, do uh, you have a junk drawer in your house? You guys know what a junk drawer is? Uh, the, the word gospel has kind of become like this junk drawer uh, where it just gathers and collects all kinds of miscellaneous things and items. But when we think of the word gospel and, and everything that was mentioned, amen, I will absolutely agree with all of those things. Those are certainly things that should be coming to our mind. But I wonder for how many of us that one of the places that we went to was without this, I'm utterly lost. That this is foundational to my very existence. This is the central aspect of my life. And if I don't have the gospel, I have no hope. See, what God's word is going to move us to this morning is tied to this idea right here. Because our hope is found in the gospel, we give it prominence in our life over all things. Because our hope is found in the gospel, we give it prominence in our life over all things. And in one sense, this is very similar to what we talked about a couple weeks ago around the idea of loving God or a faithful church loves God and and that our love for God is consuming and it's prioritizing and it drives everything uh, within us. But not just that, but that the gospel is, is central to our life. And what I mean by that is not just that it's at the center of our life or at the middle of our life, but that the gospel colors how you and I view life. The gospel becomes the lens by which I see every aspect of life. The gospel is how the lens by which I view my circumstances. The gospel becomes the lens by which I view the people around me. The gospel becomes the lens by which I view the events of my life. Because our hope is found in the gospel, we give it prominence in our life over all things. And so we're going to look at Philippians 1, verses 12 through 26 this morning. I'm sure there's a couple of parts of this text that you're probably familiar with and maybe some other parts that you are or are not familiar with. But I'm going to read God's word. would encourage you to follow along as I read this to us now. Here we go, starting in verse 12. Here's God's word for us loved ones. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. 
And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. <clears throat> the latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ... And to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Con convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you. What a beautiful, beautiful portion of the scriptures that God has for us this morning. Why don't you join me uh, as we pray, and as always, we'll pray for another church in the area. Pray with me. Uh, Lord Jesus, we come before you and we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, for the truth of your word and what you have for us here today. And God, I pray that as we open your word, that your spirit would have the freedom to move and work in and amongst your people. God, that you would have your way with us, that we would be submitted and surrendered and yielded uh, to you, allowing your spirit to convict or to challenge, encourage, exhort, whatever it is that you want to accomplish in your church today. We give you the freedom to do so. And God, not only for us, we pray for North Church. And I think of my good friend, Dave Bruscus. God, I thank you for him. And God, as he begins to transition and is moving to Dallas at the end of this month, we pray for him as he leaves, that you would go with him and Kara. And then God, for, for North and for uh, Daniel Schumann, as he functions as the interim, would you be at work at him and, and at North Church and bringing them uh, their next lead pastor. And God, for us, would you do the good work uh, that only you can do in and through your people. And so we pray that you would have your way with us now. And we pray this in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right, well, the title of the message this morning is A Faithful Church Loves the Gospel. <clears throat> a Faithful Church Loves the Gospel. I think it's probably good for us to have a firm understanding, a firm definition of what the word gospel is and what gospel means. And what do we have in mind when we say that word gospel? Uh, now, a number of you, when I asked a moment ago, what comes to your mind when you think of the word gospel, you gave us the, the, the definition. The word gospel literally means good news. Of course, the follow-up to that is, okay, good news about what? Like, what is the good news? What, what, what is the good news that's being proclaimed or referenced or referred to when we think of the gospel? 
Simply put, it's this. It's that Jesus has rescued you and I from the consequences of our sin and rebellion and rejection of God. That, that what you and I deserved was the judgment and wrath of God because we had rebelled against God. But instead, Christ, as, as an atoning sacrifice in our place, took the wrath that we deserve and instead bore it upon himself. Which is why we love the cross, not because we love instruments of death, but we love that it, it's, it's a representation that, that, that when we look at the cross, we realize, man, that's what I deserved and what Christ took for me. Now, what, what, what often happens is you start talking to people about the gospel and you start talking about judgment and wrath. And this is where a lot of people get hung up. Why does God have to be wrathful? Why does God have to judge? Like, Mike, isn't he in control? Like, isn't he all powerful? Can't he just relax a little bit? It seems like God's kind of angry. Why all this judgment? Why all this wrath? Well, I just ask you, think of yourself. Aren't you kind of the same way? Wait, 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 wait. What, what, what What do you mean? Well, don't you get angry when you're taken advantage of? Don't you get angry when you're exploited? Don't you get angry when you're used and mistreated? Of course we do. And so if it's true of us, why would we think that God would be any different? Why would we think that God would tolerate being exploited and taken advantage of when you and I would never, ever go for that or be okay with that? See, I think part of this is you and I, we, we got to be honest about the ways in which you and I are doing this. We exploit God. We take advantage of God. We misuse God and his good gifts. And when we do that, it puts us at odds with God. And so the good news of the gospel is that God's response to our sin is not that he crushes us. It's not that he wipes us from the face of the earth and says, forget you guys. It's that he rescues and he redeems that he sends Jesus to take the punishment that we deserve. And so when we speak of the gospel, when we speak of the good news and, and what's tied to that, this is what we're talking about. That what you and I deserve was judgment and wrath, and what we got instead was peace with God through the person of Jesus. That is what we're talking about when we say we love the gospel. Amen? Amen. Okay, so as we move through, let's look at Philippians 1 here. Right, A faithful church loves the gospel. As we move through the text, there's four different aspects of loving the gospel that come out here as we're going to spend our time unpacking. And I think it's going to help to reorient how we think about ourselves and how we think about our lives with respect to the gospel. So a faithful church loves the gospel. Here's the first thing. Look at verses 12 through 14. We love the gospel more than our comfort. We love the gospel more than our comfort. And I framed each of these as statements because our desire is that these would in fact be true of us. So we love the gospel more than our comfort. Okay, well, Mike, where do you see that? What's going on? Well, look at what's happening here. Paul's writing from prison. And he's in prison for being a faithful follower of Jesus. But notice that his concern in verses 12 through 14 and his emphasis is not on his situation. He's not whining and complaining and griping about like, I can't believe that I'm in in prison for this. His emphasis is on the advance of the gospel. 
In fact, in a very innocuous way, he references what has happened to him. In verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, okay, what had happened to him was a severe beating and an unfair imprisonment. And he spends very little time talking about that, but notice what he does talk about. Second half of verse 12 has really served to advance the gospel. See, he's got no concern for his rights or his comforts or things of that nature. He is into the fact, he is excited about the reality that the gospel is advancing. And so when we love the gospel more than our comfort, what we see, and we'll see this in all four of these, there's a result that comes from this, is that the gospel advances. Right, when we love the gospel more than comfort, the gospel advances. In fact, notice two groups in verses 13 and 14 that the gospel advances amongst. First of all, the gospel advances among non-believers. Look at verse 13. It's really served to advance the gospel. And in verse 12, verse 13, so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. The whole imperial guard. Now, do you understand who the imperial guard is? The Imperial Guard was, the, it was roughly 9,000 hand-picked soldiers. That's really the cream of the crop. This was a great gig to have in Rome. And for the most part, you, you had the best jobs and assignments. You, you made more. There was more benefits to this. Uh, so this is, this is a select group of soldiers that are utterly faithful to the Roman Empire. But for the low guys on the totem pole, part of what would happen is that they were shackled to the prisoners. So as Paul is writing this letter, he is shackled to a guard. But of course, the inverse of that is true as well, right? A guard is shackled to Paul as well. And so, so as people come to visit Paul, that guard's going to overhear the conversation that's taking place. Right? And, and make no mistake, undoubtedly, there's all kinds of conversations that are gospel-oriented and gospel-centered. And I'm willing to bet, I can't prove this, but I'm willing to bet that even when people weren't present, the, whatever guard was shackled to Paul was hearing the gospel. Right? How much, hey, hey uh, how much longer till you're off shift? Three hours? Okay, good. We can start in Genesis and we can take our time. So in Genesis 1, right, and you're just off, you go, what's the guard going to do? He's stuck. And just, I mean, I think of Paul, I don't know if it's like this or not, but I just think of a shark with blood in the water. That's what I think this is playing out as. It's just fresh meat constantly showing up. And so what happens, right, here's what happens, is the gospel is advancing through the whole imperial guard. In fact, at the end of the book of Philippians, Paul talks about sending his greetings to Caesar's household. Right? It's moving throughout the political elite because of Paul's imprisonment. Right, the gospel advances among non-believers. Now, let me just press one other thing that Paul says here that I think is really, really important for us. And I think it'd be easy for us to miss if we're not being really cautious of what's in the text. But look at the end of verse 13. He says, so it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that, and then these last few words, my imprisonment is for Christ. Let the depth of that statement sink in for a moment. My imprisonment is for Christ. Now, now I'm not sure about you. I, I'm willing to bet most, if not all of us, are going to jump out and go, yeah, going to prison's a good thing. We're glad Paul's in prison. Most of us are going to say, hey, this is bad. This is wrong. It's undesirable. And yet what Paul is saying is he's going, no, no, this is for Christ. This hard, this difficult, this demanding thing. It's redemptive. It's gospel-oriented, and God is making it something good. 
So what does that look like in your life in 2018? There's maybe a few ways that this plays out. I don't know about you, I haven't heard this a lot, but maybe this will be helpful for us. I wonder how many times we've heard something. Just replace that word for imprisonment with what's going on in your life. My cancer is for Christ. My unemployment is for Christ. My barrenness is for Christ. My financial crisis is for Christ. You fill in the blank with whatever it is that God and his sovereignty has allowed into your life. And begin to realize that even that is for Christ. It's profound what Paul is saying there. It's like they know why I'm here and that God is using it. And this attitude that loves the gospel more than comfort will see the gospel advancing. It advances among non-believers, but notice also in verse 14 that it advances among believers. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And so you have these other followers. There's this surge of confidence that runs through believers because of what they're seeing in Paul. And so even though Paul is suffering, and even though he's imprisoned, and even though things are hard for them, other people are witnessing this. They're watching this, and they're going, I see what God is doing. And I'm strengthened, and I'm emboldened by that. You have to wonder if Paul's response in verses 12 and 13 were different, would we see what we see in verse 14? Right? If Paul sat and complained, if Paul was whining and griping, like, this is so lame, man. I'm like an apostle and I'm sharing the gospel and I got prison for this. Come on, God. Like, and, and right, you, we do this, right? We want to put God into our debt as if he owes us something. See, I believe that it was his willingness to love the gospel more than his comfort that led to the gospel advancing. Now, can we just be really, really honest with ourselves for a moment? Not you and your spouse, not you and your kids. You you be honest between yourself and the Lord. Is this not one of the greatest hindrances to the gospel going forward in our nation today? is that we're far more concerned with our comfort than we are with the advance of the gospel. So I think the idol of comfort is one of the most insidious idols in our day and age. We will make major life decisions and one of the primary or even the sole driving factor in how we make those decisions is tied to our comfort. Now, now, don't misunderstand me. Being comfortable is not inherently wrong. It's not inherently sinful. So I'm not, I'm not saying, hey, let's all flog ourselves and be miserable, and that somehow makes us more holy. That's not at all what I'm saying. Here's what I am saying. When my comfort begins to squeeze and push Jesus to the periphery, when my comfort and my ease begins to squeeze and push the gospel to the periphery or out of my life entirely then undoubtedly at that point, it is sinful and wrong. And what we see over and over and over again in the scriptures is that the gospel is not going to, rarely will it push us towards comfort and ease. A lot of times it's going to push us towards being uncomfortable and uneasy. It's going to challenge us. So ask yourself, I got a couple questions for you. When you think about loving the gospel more than your comfort, you uh, wrestle through these questions. Am I willing to be uncomfortable 
Am I willing to be unsettled for the sake of the gospel? Am I willing to be uncomfortable? If that means the advance of the gospel, am I in on that? Am I willing to let go of my comfort? Here's my second question. Am I willing to be moved for the gospel? Now, maybe in some sense, there's a social component to this. That things are going to get a little bit uncomfortable socially if, if I really lean into the advance of the gospel. It's going to rock the boat a little bit. Am I still in? But really, primarily what I have in mind is, am I willing to be moved physically for the gospel? So if God were to come to you this week and say, all right, pack it up. I'm sending you to Las Cruces, or I'm sending you to Phoenix, or I'm sending you to Dallas, or to Kansas City, or Denver, or wherever it is. You're going to go? Am I willing to be uncomfortable for the sake of the gospel? What what if God came to you and said, no, no, I'm, I'm... I'm going to move you out of the country. I'm going to send you to Mexico or El Salvador or Venezuela or Sri Lanka or Tanzania or wherever it is. Now, listen, we need to live as people who are sent, period. We all are. We're all sent. The gospel is clear. The Great Commission is clear about that. But what if God actually sent you somewhere else? What if God sent me somewhere else? And you're like, ooh, I'm going to pray for that. I like that option way better. I'll get rid of you. Problem solved. Knock it off. Okay? But here's the deal. If God said, pack it up, I'm gone. And I hope that we would all feel that way. We love the gospel more than our comfort. Here's the second thing. Look at verses 15 through 18. We love the gospel more than our reputation. We love the gospel more than our reputation. Now, this is a really interesting portion of text and what's going on. And you might even read it and be like, this is so weird. What is going on here? So let let me read these first couple of verses here. Paul, in response to the advance of the gospel, tells us really how the gospel is advancing. And you've got a group of people that are preaching Christ. And some are preaching uh, for good reasons and others uh, for not so good reasons. Look at what he says, verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. That's so weird. But others from good will. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Like, what in the world is going on? Like, who would preach the gospel from a position of rivalry or envy? What is happening? Most likely what's going on here is you have a group of people that are jealous of Paul. That the people had been involved in ministry or, 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 or some, something like that. And Paul shows up and he's instantly popular. And they're all excited about him. And everyone wants to follow him. Oh, Paul's this great guy. And so there's this jealousy. There's this envy. There's this bitterness. There's this resentment of the attention that Paul is getting. And so they come up with this fascinating idea. They're like, oh, I know we can stick to him. Let's preach the gospel. That'll show him. And Paul's like, um, verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So, here's what you have to understand. Part of what these guys are after is they're taking shots at Paul, they're slandering Paul, they're undermining who he is. See, they weren't opposed to the gospel, and they weren't opposed to Jesus, and they weren't preaching a false gospel, because Paul would have certainly called them out for that. They were just opposed to Paul. 
They wanted to see him suffer. They wanted people to think poorly of him. And so really, in a, in a contemporary sense, they're going after his reputation and what people think of him. And yet Paul's response is that he's so consumed with the gospel and people who are far from Christ coming to know the good news of what Jesus has done, that he's saying, you know what? My feelings, my aspirations, my reputation is of no importance if it means that the gospel is going forward. And so the result, right, when we love the gospel more than our reputation, what does Paul say? Look at verse 18, that Christ is proclaimed. The gospel is proclaimed. When we love the gospel more than our reputation, the result is that the gospel is going to be proclaimed. Now, much like our comfort, if we're honest, this is a major issue for us. This is something that we all wrestle with. I'm like, man, what are people going to think, right? We, we, We care far too deeply about what people will think about us and not deeply enough about those people's state before God. We're concerned for our reputation. And, and so we wrestle with things like, what are they going to say? What are they going to think? And usually we end up in some place where they're like, are they, th- they going to think that I'm weird? Yes. But that might have nothing to do with the gospel, to be totally fair. Okay? <laughs> that might be two totally separate issues that are at play. But what does Paul tell the Corinthian church? He says the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But it's the power of God to those who are being saved. And just think in your own life. There was someone in your life who stepped out and took a risk of you thinking that they were kind of weird or odd or just off their rocker. And began to share the gospel with you. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're like, yeah, you know, honestly, I think most people in the room are pretty weird. And you're not wrong, okay? Just varying degrees, but yeah, we're just we're all a little bit odd. And the gospel, the, the gospel will do that. But can I, just, man, can I just tell you that if you and I can move past a place where our primary concern is not our reputation, it's incredibly freeing. So I've been in vocational ministry for 15 years. When I got into vocational ministry, it was at worst socially neutral, uh, if not socially advantageous to do what I did. People thought it was good. They thought it was noble. Oh, that's great uh, that, that, that you're a minister of the gospel. We're for that today. Not so much. I'll get into mixed company and hey, what do you do? Always have that moment of like, well, do you do I want to talk to this person anymore or not? Because often when you say I'm a pastor, it just gets weird in a hurry. <laughs> and so sometimes I'll be like, I'm a spiritual consultant, or <laughs> kind of look at you, you know, you kind of make light of it or something like. But but here's what happens today: it's not socially advantageous. In the best of scenarios, it's socially neutral. A lot of times, it's socially disadvantageous. And I can remember probably four, five, six years ago where there, there was just this huge shift where this was happening. And I really wrestled with that. And, and then when I realized, man, this is so freeing. Because most people, right, most people today, when they hear pastors, unfortunately, when you read the headlines, they're thinking one of three or four things. They're like, you're cheating on your wife, you're stealing money, or you're a predator. That's what they think. And in fairness, that's most of what they see in the headlines. 
right? And, and so, so you just kind of push past that and it's like, well, at this point I've got nothing to lose. Seriously. So now I don't care if you think I'm weird. I don't care if you think I'm off my rocker, but you're going to hear the gospel. It's freeing for us when we can set aside our reputation. But it's only freeing when I love the gospel more than I love my reputation. So I love when ask yourself, ask yourself, am I willing to lose my reputation if it means gospel advancement? And can I say what Paul says in verse 18? Can I really uh, agree wholeheartedly that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Can I say that even if that means that I'm going to be maligned or mocked or made fun of or not respected? Can I say that if I'm no longer the hero, that I'm no longer the one that gets credit or am noticed? Can I say what Paul is saying there? And we can only say that if we love the gospel more than our reputation. Here's the third thing. Look at verse 18 through 24. I mean, not that these first two were easy, uh, but they just kind of pale in comparison to this next one here. Uh, We love the gospel more than life. We love the gospel more than life itself. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. We love the gospel more than we love life. Let me point out a couple of things that Paul says here that are really, I think, helpful for us to understand this. First of all, in verse 19, Paul talks about this turning out for his deliverance. That word deliverance, is, it has nothing to do with his circumstance or his situation. There's no physical bearing on that. In fact, that word deliverance is often tied to salvation. And so here's what Paul, Paul is actually telling the Philippian church as he's going, um, God is going to deliver me and I might die in here. And those two things are not mutually exclusive or divorced from each other. It's a perspective that prioritizes the gospel above life. And then in verse 20, he goes on, he says, As it is my eager expectation and hope. Let's talk about the word hope for a moment. When we think of hope, we have this wishful thinking component that comes with it. I hope it doesn't rain. I hope the Cowboys are good this year. No, I don't. Okay. Anybody hope the Cowboys are good this year? Okay. So after the service, we're going to gather around them. We're going to pray over them. Obviously, uh, the need for some sanctification in their lives. All right. But there's this, there's this wishful thinking that this is going to happen. Now, that's very, very different than biblical hope. Listen to this quote from Kent Hughes on biblical hope. Biblical hope brims with certainty because it is based on the fact that God is God, and I love this, and has underwritten our future. So when Paul in verse 20 is saying, it's my eager expectation and hope, he's not like, man, I'm desirous that this would happen. He's like, no, no, you can count on this happening. Okay, what do do we count on, Paul? That I'm not going to be ashamed, but full courage now as always. Christ is going to be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. See, when we love the gospel more than life, the result of that is that Christ is honored. 
Whether I live or whether I die, Christ is honored. What an amazing way to live life. Let me ask you a question. Who in here is competitive? Raise your hand if you're competitive, okay? Um, like a couple people are like putting their hand up like, I'm going to raise my hand better than everyone else, right? Just proving I'm more competitive. Listen, no one's more competitive than me, just so we're going to settle everything here, okay? Um, but that, that was a joke, kind of. Not really, actually. Uh, but like so some of us are so competitive, you're playing like a board game with your three-year-old, and, and you're, you're kind of like, oh, I know I should let him win, but I, I just can't do it. And that's, you've got problems, okay? The, those types of people, that's just a whole nother level. But for competitive types, what's the worst thing in the world? Losing, Losing right? That's not a trick, trick question. It's, it's horrible to lose. Check out this scenario. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain. <laughs> There's no losing there. I win or I win. I love that, right? No matter what, I win. So, so hold on. If I live, th- th- that's Christ. And if I die as gain. It's beautiful, right? Christ is honored. In two primary ways we see this playing out, to live as Christ. To live as Christ. And so in order to really reap the benefits of this, we have to understand what, what, all that Paul is getting at here. Let me just give us a couple of things briefly on this. We could preach an entire sermon just on this verse. But first of all, this, don't miss this. When he says, for to me to live as Christ, don't miss the fact that his identity is wrapped up in Christ. Paul no longer exists in some sense. His identity is consumed by the person of Jesus. All that he is now belongs to him. Right? The whole of his life is oriented towards Christ. And then in verse 22, he goes on and he's unpacking this idea of living uh, is Christ. He says, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Now, loved ones, don't confuse fruitful labor with results. We're so results-oriented and so results-driven, oftentimes we can't see them, uh, at least not in the immediate or sometimes even in our lifetime. But he's talking about fruitful labor. What does he mean? So my identity is found in Christ, but he's also saying that to live is Christ, that my life has meaning and it has purpose. That there is something greater than myself to live for. That there's something that I can invest and, and, and throw myself into. right? That, that I can expend myself in the work of God. In something that has eternal value. I heard a great quote from Matt Chandler just this week. Matt Chandler is a pastor of a huge church in Texas. He says this. He says, if you're bored with your Christian life, you're doing it wrong. And I think he's getting at this idea right here. See, if we're bored with our Christian life, I, probably what we've done is we've made it about ourselves. And, and I don't mean this in a snarky or sarcastic way, but none of us are nearly as captivating and as riveting as Christ. And, and so you and I, oh, we, we, can, we can throw ourselves into ourselves for a season, but after a little while, we just get boring. And it no longer becomes fun to live for ourselves. And it feels so baseline, and yet to live as Christ is to throw ourselves into something far greater, far larger, far more glorious than anything that you and I in and of ourselves could ever become. And I think far too often we miss the mission, the adventure, and the journey that Jesus has for us. 
And so in a big sense, right, God has given us an identity and he's given us meaningful labor. Let me just connect this idea of to live as Christ maybe in a more practical or tangible way. Um, so I, I was chatting with a couple people before the service and I said, how was your week? And I said, honestly, it was just terrible. It was just a bad week. It was one of those weeks where it didn't matter what I did, it just went wrong. You ever had a week where you feel like you're losing at everything? You, you ever been there? Okay. That was last week for me. I was talking to my brother Tuesday evening and I said, I'm like the Cleveland Browns of life right now, man. I can't win anything. Right. Just like nothing going my way. And, and so, so, you know, here I am where I'm just so frustrated by this and and loved ones, you got to understand far before I ever preach on a Sunday morning, God is preaching his word over and over and over again to me throughout the week. And so with piercing clarity, time and time again, uh, God just kept bringing me back to, to the first part of verse 21. He's like, no, no, listen, Mike, for to me to live is Christ. You're still trying to make it about Mike. You got to start making it about Christ. And every one of these issues becomes a chance, an opportunity for you to live for me. Tuesday night, I just had to go home and just repent of all the ways that I've been trying to live for myself. Now, now, listen, I'm not telling you that that was a magic pill and it made everything better, but it radically altered my outlook, which did, in fact, change how I looked at all kinds of things that were going on. We love the gospel more than life in that Christ is honored to live as Christ and then wildly to die as gain. In fact, Paul tells us in verse 23 that not only is this option better, it's far better incomparable. It's like, this, this, this is hands down the option. If we get to choose that I want. Loved one, do you believe it? Do you believe that dying would be gain? If you walked out of here and dropped down dead, do you think that that would be to your advantage? Do I really believe that death is to my advantage? Because if we're followers of Jesus and we hear that and we go, to die is gain. No, I don't know if I believe that or not. It betrays the reality that I don't really believe what God tells me about his word or his person. And it, and I betrays the reality that I don't believe what God says about eternity. But this right here, this idea of to die is gain. Man, this will free you from the clutter and the noise and the fog of life in a hurry. It will bring crystal clear clarity. And it's freeing. In fact, it's incredibly freeing. If we can embrace this idea, this truth of dying as gain. Think, think about Paul's life. I mean, he's in prison. So maybe you're like, well, d- dying's gain because you're in prison and you're, you're not going to get out. Uh, yeah, I'd agree with you there. But, but think about the whole of his life. Think about all the different responses that the religious leaders had to Paul throughout his ministry. Paul, if you don't stop talking about Jesus, we're going to do something. All right. We're going to punish you. I'm worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. That's awesome. Okay, fine. We're, we're going to throw you in prison. Wait, you mean I get a witness to, to guards and, and strengthen brothers? Like, yeah, man, I'm in. Let's do that. Let's shackle me up right now. Okay, fine. We're going we're gonna to destroy your reputation. Um, you, you realize I've called myself the chief of sinners, and I've told everyone that I'm super weak. What more could you possibly say about me that's worse than what I really am? And so where does it move him to? We're going to kill you. Now think about this for a second. If you're Paul, 
we're going to kill you. Really? For real? Let's go, man, I'll, I'll race you to the gallows. Why? Because to die is gain. Listen to me. Listen very carefully to me. If the worst that the world can threaten you with is the greatest treasure of all for us, it's got nothing on us. Did you hear that? Don't you understand how freeing that is? If the worst that the world can throw at you is like, really? That's the best possible scenario for me. It's got nothing on you. Run around like spiritual Superman. You can't touch me. But listen, listen, listen. It only frees us if we truly believe in our heart of hearts that dying is in fact gain. And when we live this way, Christ is honored in our life and in our death. And so, love, I want to ask yourself, do I see my life as belonging to Christ? And do I see death as gain? We love the gospel more than life. Here's the final thing. Briefly, look at verse 25 and 26. We love the gospel more than personal preference. We love the gospel more than personal preference. He says this. um, Actually, let me go back to verse 24. But to remain in the flesh is far more necessary on your account. He's just saying, listen, it'd be way better to go and be with Jesus. But I, I think it's more necessary for me to stay. So, verse 25. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. We love the gospel more than personal preference. And I love what, he, what, what he's saying here is that, that, <clears throat> that there's this progress and this joy of the saints. Loved ones, do you see yourself progressing in your spiritual life? Do you see growth? Do you see movement? Or do you sit here and you think, yeah, I've actually arrived. I've got it all figured out. There's nothing else for me to grow in. Um, I really do have it all figured out. Not sure how that's going to go for you. You're pretty much just waiting to die, I guess. Um, I find great comfort and excitement in verse 25 and 26. At this expectation that we're going to continue to grow, that God's going to continue to be at work in us. And so notice the result. Look at verse 26. So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. See, when we love the gospel more than personal preference, Christ is gloried in. Which is beautiful. When we love the gospel more than personal preference, it leads to Jesus being gloried in. Let me just ask two questions here. Uh, Number one, is there any preference I'm currently holding above the gospel? Is is there something in your life? I prefer this. I want this. I want uh, this to be true of the scriptures, even though it's not. Or I want to live this way, or I refuse to come under this component or this piece of what God has for me. Is there any preference in your life that you're holding above the gospel? Here's the second one. Am I more concerned with my personal preference or with Christ being gloried in? Maybe another way of saying this is to say, is getting what I want more satisfying than Jesus getting what he deserves? Which is it? A faithful church loves the gospel. Now, normally I'd pray, we'd sing a song, but uh, we're going to close in an entirely different fashion this morning. And I I think one of the 
one of the most helpful ways for us to love the gospel, to be excited about the gospel, to rejoice in the gospel, is to see how the gospel is at work within us and amongst us. And to be stimulated and challenged and, and grown in that. So, Marcia, where are you? Come on up, Marcia. Um, so I've asked Marcia. I didn't put her on the spot. Okay, so don't think. Some of you may be like, I can't. He just called her up. No, I asked her. She knew. Okay, she could prepare for this. But I've asked her to just come and share uh, some things about the last couple months in her life. And um, here, you come front and center. I'll come stand over here. And so, Marcia, why don't you just start by telling us what has happened in the last couple months of your life? Okay. So in order for me to really tell um, you about what happened really in June, um, I have to kind of go back a ways because I lost my faith um, when I was in high school. And what happened was um, even though I was raised in a Christian home, went to youth group. Hold the mic up close. Sorry. <laughs> went to youth group and um, uh, would call myself a Christian. I really would have to describe that my faith was shallow or superficial. And so um, what happened when I was in 11th grade was that I had to write a paper for um, one of my classes, and it was um, on world religions. And when I was researching and writing this paper, it really shook me, and it really made me think about things that I hadn't thought about before. And I started questioning, you know, is God real? Um, maybe we just tell ourselves this story because it's awful to think about a short life and then death and nothing else. And that was a miserable place to be. But unfortunately, I could not shake it. I, my doubt was higher than my faith. And what I found um, in those many years from then to now was that I, um, I was always drawn to people of faith. Um, I continued to pray. I felt a spirit, and I felt um, strength, but I couldn't, I couldn't describe it. I couldn't use language that had to do with what I considered my religious upbringing, because every time I did, it was like I, the doubt just took over for me. Um, and so I'd been praying, and when I moved here to Albuquerque, um, and when my daughter Tara um, started dating and eventually married Aiden, and I was around um, their family a lot more, and I occasionally came to this church, um, I felt um, a whole different level of strength, comfort, uh, hope that maybe I could switch this because it wasn't ever this logical decision for me that, oh, well, I can't believe that anymore. Therefore, I didn't feel anything about it. It was horrible. Uh, it was a burden that I carried all the time, and I didn't like it, but I just couldn't figure out how to turn it around. Um, and so this summer, um, you know, really, <laughs> um, my mom died in February. Teresa died in March. Um, lost my job. I mean, I had a lot of time to really think about what was going on in my life, and um, I had been praying a lot, uh, and I had um, a trip up to 
my brothers in June. It wasn't planned, but um, all of his kids came to visit. And my nephew, who happens to be a pastor, um, I had been praying to have a conversation with someone to just kind of spark this change because I knew I was ready, but it was just like I couldn't, I just couldn't make the switch. And um, when I um, was up there and I started talking to him about um, where I was at and what had been going on in my life, um, he talked to me for hours. I mean, he he talked to me about, um, you know, kind of what he saw happening into me. He said, you know, I really think you have a lot more faith than you give yourself credit for, which made me feel better, but it was just like, I couldn't tell myself that honestly and really feel it. Um, but um, I treasured the time that I had to be able to talk to him. And he, my, during that time, that week, my, my doubt turned to faith. And, um, sorry. Don't apologize. <laughs> he, this is going to be hard. He gave me some really good ideas on how to continue to have my faith grow. And so he suggested three specific books by C.S. Lewis. He suggested a study Bible. And he suggested um, that I surround myself with people of faith. And I'd already started doing that, and which is why I think I had more courage to be vulnerable and to be able to ask those questions and start that conversation and uh, so that's kind of how my faith flipped and <laughs> why um, my life has changed quite a bit. <laughs> yeah. I love that line, my uh, move from doubt to faith. And one of the things, Marcia, you had made in a, in a statement to me was, I was a skeptic for 40 years. Um, and, and even, right, I don't know if you caught it, but she referenced, you know, coming in and being at church and just these small, subtle, they seem innocuous, they, they seem so, so mundane to us. And loved ones, you have no idea. You have no idea the body of work that God is going to use to be at work in people's lives. So let, let me ask you this. Um, tell us how Jesus is changing you. So before I even left Colorado and visiting my brother, I'd already bought... Um, a book by C.S. Lewis, which had a lot of his works in it, and I started reading it. I was, I feel almost like um, ravenous, like a sponge that wants to be filled. Um, and so I started reading. As soon as I got my um, study Bible, I started studying. I mean, it's um, I'm praying all the time. Um, when I started my new job, um, <laughs> I was praying that um, that I would be a, a work. Um, within that organization. Um, And that, you know, the things, you know, here I've been much more involved. And so things that would have been scary, um, uh, like uh, guess who's coming to dinner, I might not have done that before. Um, And I remember standing in line getting ready to sign up and thinking, oh, just leave. (laughs) Just leave, don't go. Um, And I, I signed my name, and I had so much fun that night. Um, and so being involved with um, people within this church um, have, has been very helpful to me. And um, so, yeah, that's kind of how I see. 
Yeah, and, and uh, one, so a couple things. One, yeah. she says she signed up for Who's Coming to Dinner. She hosted. Okay? <laughs> so that, that's not, not just like I'm going to show up and I've got an exit strategy. <laughs> These people are in your home, and I've got to kick them out or deal with them type thing. <laughs> um, and, and, so, and one of the things I love that you said was, was – Part of how he's changing me is I have this desire, like all these things, but now I have a desire and a conviction to do them, which I think is such a, a helpful thing. And see that, right, when, when, when the gospel begins to take root in people's lives, it's not just, okay, now you've got to figure it out. It's that the Spirit of God is moving us and, and working within it. One, one final question, Marcia. Um, what would you want people to know? about the work of Jesus in your life, or maybe, maybe even in an, an exhortive manner, like, man, don't miss this, or uh, just when I think on, on my years, this is what I'd want you to know. Right. I mean, those 40 years were painful, um, and I, I didn't share that honesty of what I was going through with hardly anyone, um, even though it was something I thought about constantly. And um, I wanted to talk to people about it, but one, I didn't want anyone who was in maybe a spot where I was at when I was exposed to writing that paper. I didn't want anyone to go down that same path that I had because it was a miserable place to be. But I also didn't want to be judged. And I was really kind of ashamed of having lost my faith. And so I didn't feel comfortable talking about it, even though I really wanted to. I mean, there were different opportunities that came up where, you know, a Bible study might come up and someone would invite me. But I knew that within the first 15 minutes that they'd know I was a doubter, not a believer. And that that didn't feel good. It, it felt, I guess I just didn't trust enough yet. I wasn't there. Um, but I did want to talk about it. Um, another thing I think that would have been really helpful is, you know, as I was being raised in my family, um, I really wish there had been conversation about faith, what it meant. You know, like especially with my mom, I, I saw her reading her Bible every morning. I saw her doing studies, um, being involved with the church. But I never had a conversation with her about what her faith meant to her. Um, even though I spoke to her about religion, the, the main story I really got was more about obligation. You must go to church. You must do this. You must do that. And so I never got a real feel from her about what she got out of her faith. Did she, you know, what happened when she was challenged? What happened? Did she have joy? I, I hope that she did. And I, I want to believe that she did um, and that she didn't do it just because of obligation. But unfortunately, that's what I saw and it didn't help me. And therefore, I didn't really have a solid base when I hit my own challenge. Um, and I think maybe if I had, maybe that would have helped me. Um, when Tara found her faith, it was, um, I was happy for her. Um, I wish I was there too, in the sense of being, um, fight, having found my faith at the same time, but it just took me longer, but I was really happy for her. And, um, Aiden, Taryn, and I have sat down and we've talked about the challenges that I was going through and that I really didn't want to be here. I didn't want to be in that spot emotionally, but yet um, it's where I was at. I never felt any pressure from them. I only felt love and support and, and kindness about it and, you know, wishing for me. I, I guess um, uh, it was just a much easier way for me to um, get take my own path. Um, 
I don't remember what um, else I might have told you in the past about that. Um, so I don't know. <laughs> yeah. No, I, th- I think that's fantastic. And I, I, let me just maybe piggyback on what you're saying. Um, what a great exhortation. Parents, engage your children. Children, engage your parents. Right? It cuts both ways. That's part of the beauty of this story. And isn't this, isn't this a beautiful portrait of the grace of God playing out in one person's life, right? And of course, the, the impact exceeds far beyond just one. But th- this is the gospel doing what the gospel does. Praise God. Amen? Amen. Thank you. It's not easy to come and stand up here. Um, this is intimidating, especially when you've wrestled with doubt for decades and you've been a believer for a couple of months. And so you see Marsha afterwards, you hug her and you thank her uh, for stepping out in faith for doing that. I'll tell you what, here's what we're going to do. Um, I'm going to ask you to stand. And in a moment, I'm going to pray over us and we're going to be dismissed. Um, before I do, a couple things. We'll have folks available up on the, uh, on the sides. You want to pray. Uh, you you want to know more about the gospel. You're wrestling with the gospel. Help me to understand this. Um, I, I need to return to this. Uh, come up on the front, in the sides, in the middle. Love to pray for you. Also, party with the pastor. Uh, we'll start in about 10, 15 minutes right through these double doors. Uh, free lunch. Great chance to get to know more about the church uh, if you're interested. Let me pray for us, and we'll go. Lord Jesus. We pray that as we go out from here today, that we would be people who love the gospel, that we would be encouraged by the gospel, that we would be reminded of the glories of the gospel, that we would be thankful for the good news of the gospel and all that you've accomplished on our behalf. So God, we pray that you would go with us now, that we would be quick to share, to love, to serve, uh, to engage, and to walk with those uh, that you put around us. God, help us to be cognizant of of ways that that maybe are simple or mundane or seem innocuous to us, and yet they become one of a number of pieces that you use to do something in someone's life. And so would we go... Uh, as men and women who love you and love the good news of the gospel. We pray this in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.